0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from the Star House in Columbus, which helps homeless youth aged 14 to 24. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics, including the effort to end hazing in Ohio, COVID vaccines for the youngest in Columbus, and a look at inflation and the reasons behind it. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Jill Gorge, who is the clinical services manager for the Star House in Columbus. How are you? I'm
1: doing well. How are you doing?
0: Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Star House is.
1: Star House is a drop-in center that serves youth experience homelessness who are ages 14 to 24 years old. So we are open 24-7, and we provide a space for uh, youth and young adults to come. We have food. Um, they can prepare a meal for themselves. They can do their laundry, uh, use a computer. They can rest, just have a break from the streets. And we have a clinical team that they can meet with to work on the goals that they have.
0: And you're located a little bit south of the fairgrounds in that area, is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, we're kind of, I, I describe us as being behind the intersection of uh, East 5th and Cleveland Avenue. We're on Way, so we're kind of tucked
0: back a little bit. Okay. And uh, so, and I was looking at, at your statistics from last year. You served more than 800 youth.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we typically see about 1,000 youth in a calendar year, unduplicated youth.
2: Wow,
0: that's amazing. So when you say that you're helping homeless youth 14 to 24, can you talk a little bit about who they are? And I know it's probably impossible to generalize, but just paint a picture of who these kids are and what has happened to them.
1: Sure. Um, I guess to generalize, I would say that they have been alienated in some fashion. So a lot of our kids, I think about half of our kids uh, have been in foster care and then we get uh, we have a high, higher concentration of LGBTQI youth which represented at a higher rate. And kids who have run away from abusive situations or have been put out by their families. Uh, sometimes their families have similar struggles, and so they, when they turn 18, they don't have uh, any support to look to.
0: Are these kids? Uh, you know, do they personally see themselves in? crisis mode, or are they sort of, you know, uh, of an independent spirit and forging on with a lot of bravery? You know, w- w- what is their makeup like?
1: So, I would say yes to both of those. So, it just kind of depends on their situation. They, a lot of them are in survival mode, and so they are focusing on just kind of existing, being able to make it some day-to-day, make sure they have a meal, make sure they have some space to be, um, try just to just make sure that... You know that they can survive. That's where most of them sort of hang out in that space. There are a few kids, few situations. You know, they wind up homeless just because of a fluke or a roommate who backs out. And their situations they tend to remedy a little bit quicker. But for the most part, part our kids uh, they adapt to living on the streets. And the way I describe that is survival mode.
0: Have most of them been on the street for a while by the time they find Star House?
1: Uh, it varies. They are really good at looking out for one another, and so when they have somebody, when they come across somebody who doesn't know about Star House, they refer them (laughs) themselves, and so they're our number one referral source, uh, for sure. Uh, They're probably, we we have an outreach worker, too, that goes out to food pantries and libraries and social service agencies, uh, soup kitchens, campsites. And just tries to make sure that everyone who could come in contact with the struggling youth knows about Star House and can help them get to our
0: facility. So when they first uh, become homeless and, and they they make this decision or if it is their decision to, to be out on their own, or do they end up sort of uh, navigating their way toward uh, homeless camps with, with adults or are they are they more solitary? What is their lifestyle like before they turn to help?
1: A lot of times they do not gravitate toward adults. They're usually not interested in the homeless shelter. A lot of times they find those experiences intimidating. And so when they have, when they do camp, it's usually with other youth. So, and there's a lot of our youth who are homeless who couch surf, and so they, they try to have a network of people and stay on a couch until they wear out their welcome and kind of move on to the next place where they can um, find shelter. And unfortunately, a lot of our kids do have to um, engage in some unsafe or unsavory
0: things in order just to secure a roof over their head or a meal. Talking with Jill Gores, she's the clinical services manager at Starhouse. What about the, the level of despondency, uh, suicide fears, or, uh, you know, uh, drug addiction, that type of thing? Oh,
1: yeah. So, the top two causes of death for our population are overdose and suicide, and so both drug addiction and mental health are very huge things that we deal with and try to address with this population. Um, trauma is probably one of the number one things that we try to target, try to help with, because see, I don't know if you're familiar with the ACEs screening tool, again, for adverse childhood experiences, and it just kind of takes a look at some of the things that a person experiences, traumatic things they you experience in the first 18 years of their lives, and so there's 10 questions, and our youth, their scores average about 8.4 on that scale, which is extremely above average. It's pretty high. So they've faced a lot of childhood trauma, in addition to the trauma of, you know, in the streets. And so, I, I always say I think probably 80 to 90 percent of our of the youth that we serve suffer from a full PTSD diagnosis, which is just further complicates and makes their struggles more difficult. Wow.
0: So when they go there for, you know, a hot meal and a shower and, you know, a place to spend the night or whatever, just to even just to get a few hours of uh, stability, I, I would imagine that at some point your hope is to try to move them toward more sustainable help with the therapy and that type of thing, which must be a real challenge because I'm guessing they don't really trust anybody.
1: No, they they, they aren't very trustworthy. They've been uh, hurt. A lot of our youth have been hurt by the system and by adults in their lives, and so it takes a lot of work to um, build trust with them. And when they come looking for a, a hot meal and a shower, they're also looking for some human connection. And so we emphasize heavily the importance of being supportive and unconditional in our support and the way that, that they have a space where they can come and know that there are adults here who care about them. That goes a long way in building trust. and. It it always surprises me how willing they are to get help with things. So, they're ready. So many of them want things to feel
0: differently. Some of the th- ways that you help. I mean, I was looking at some of the statistics. Nearly all of them can get and, and do take advantage of of transportation help that you offer them, as well as medical care. I mean, almost all of them. And then some even move on to uh, some some housing that you have available on the west side.
1: youth right now, uh, we've been kind of joking about the, the changes we're seeing as we start to serve more of a Generation V crowd, um, but they are pretty motivated, and I think that youth being lazy, because being homeless because they're lazy, is definitely a myth. Uh, a lot of our youth are pretty motivated to make some changes and to try to get kids on their feet, and so they do. They're, they're eager for employment and for housing, and we, we've we been really fortunate to have the Carroll Stewart Village available as an option for a lot of our kids over on the west side on West Broad, to support a community with a studio apartment for just kids like the ones we showed.
0: 62 units over there, and I guess uh, once they get in there as well, you help them with uh, employment, too. Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, with a lot of things. Uh, They have numerous services on site, everything from uh, a legal aid attorney to mental health services and case management, um, social enterprise the pedals that inspire. They, they try to offer
0: as many services as possible to, you know, help our kind of usher our kids into success. We touched a moment ago about the the drug addiction problem that that these youth have, and the Ohio Opioid Education Alliance is out with this Beat the Stigma campaign. Uh, and I would guess that the stigma is an awful big obstacle with these kids. You no, know,
1: it really is for our kids the stigma is twofold. We have the stigma around drug addiction and then the stigma around homelessness. I think the, the tragedy of it is just that so many people kind of buy into those stigmas and including our youth. And so we spend a lot of, a lot of time and energy trying to um, help them see their value and see that they're more than their situation and they're more than, if they're addicted, they're more than their addiction and help them have just kind of a clear vision on that. They're amazing kids. They're resilient and they're generous and they're loyal like, and with, with all the stigma that they encounter i think keeps a lot of people from getting to see that side of
0: them and if you've got a kid who finally finds some stability some some adults that they can trust especially in a professional setting like that you know not just some stranger that is uh being nice to him, and then who's telling them, you know, that these problems that you're finding yourself in, you shouldn't be beating yourself up over it. It's, you know, it's something that there are solutions and ways to get out of. It just must be a tremendous feeling that that they can garner from that, you know, after a while. Oh, right.
1: That's definitely the part of my job that gives me goosebumps and sort of the thing that keeps us going is getting to watch somebody kind of move into that knowledge or that understanding where they start to see themselves differently. And, you know, they start to get some healing from the things that they've been through and realize that, you know, it doesn't always have to be the way that it is. It's things to get better. And, you know, it's what keeps us working, doing this work that's incredibly challenging.
0: But it is a difficult climb. I mean, uh, you know, from what I read about addiction, uh, opioid addiction is just really difficult, uh, one of the more diff- difficult addictions to beat.
1: Uh, through the effects that opiates have on the brain and the withdrawal symptoms that some, a lot of times our youth are using opiates, not because they want to get high, but because they're trying to avoid being in misery. Yeah, we work really hard. Our staff is all, all of our frontline staff are trained to use, use Narcan, but sadly that's an important thing, service for us here. But, you know, we kind of follow the stage of the change model and whether they are, willing and ready to get help and try to get clean or whether they don't want to talk about the issue at all they think that they don't have a problem they don't really want to change regardless of where they are we're going to meet them with a lot of support and so that whenever they are ready for that change whenever they want to take those steps we're right here for them ready to help them make it happen
0: talking with jill gore's clinical services manager for star house which advocates for homeless youth uh, 14 to 24 in columbus these days It's so difficult. We're coming through the pandemic. We've got this opioid problem going on that's been going on for years now. Now there's affordable housing is just about impossible to find. And it just seems like there's an awful lot of things that are stacking up against kids these days.
1: Sure. And when you look at some of the risk factors that push people toward addiction, things like stress and trauma, uh, I think I mentioned earlier that our youth score an average of eight on the ACEs screening scale, which is a really high indicator of childhood trauma, and like research is showing that kids or anybody who scores a five or higher on that are seven to ten times more likely to use illegal drugs and become addicted, so it's sort of a perfect storm for a lot of our youth between the combination of the trauma they've experienced, uh, life on the streets, and the Insane amount of stress that they encounter every day. Yeah, it really sets the stage for
0: some, some addiction and some tough times. From what I understand, Star House started in 2006, and it was uh, at that time an Ohio State University project that you're still associated with, right?
1: Right. So we uh, became our own entity in 2017, but the relationship between Star House and OSU remained strong. We, the research that uh, that started back in 06 continues like there's there's still research ongoing projects happening and that team has they have offices on site they're here every day still a part of some really groundbreaking
0: stuff it's outstanding so when kids uh do come into the star house your first order of business i guess would be to meet immediate needs to get a shower to get a meal spend the night maybe and then i guess just about anything could happen the next day they might leave or, or stick around right
1: Right, right. So we try to be as low barrier as possible, as low threshold as possible. So if someone needs to is 14 to 24 years old and they don't have a safe place to live, a consistent safe place to live, then they can definitely come to Star House 24-7, just pop in. They don't need to have ID. They don't have to sign up on a list or get a referral. They can just walk right in and state that is their first time here and go get a tour of the facility and then a brief orientation over the rules and just kind of help them understand how to access the resources that we do have. And then they can do whatever they need to do. If they want to fix some, some noodles, they want to fix some dinner, they want to grab a shower, they want to take a nap, they want to check their email or watch a video on a computer, you know, whatever they need to do. They can also request to talk to a caseworker, or a therapist if they Come in and they have some stuff they want to deal with right away. We try to be available
0: for that. It's outstanding. I don't know how much you could address this issue or, or uh, how much of a concern it is for you, but with the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling, it appears that someone who feels that they're in need of an abortion, it's very difficult these days now to get one in Ohio with the heartbeat law in effect. Does that, is that going to have an impact on Starhouse? Oh,
1: Starhouse as an organization. The youth that we serve are definitely going to be impacted by that. Um, And in all honesty, in Columbus, Central Ohio, being able to access those services has been challenging anyway because the facility is closing down. So I know we've had a couple of youth that have had to travel uh, to different parts of the state for those services. Um, And Planned pregnancy is a uh, real thing for a variety of reasons that we see here with our youth. So I do expect that this is not going to have a good impact
0: on them at all. You know, we, we always hear about arguments at the state house about cases of rape or incest, and yet uh, this is sort of the population where these would be the types who would be at higher risk of that than, than the general population. Yep, it, that
1: is definitely true, especially uh, young women. Uh, they are extremely vulnerable on the streets, and that is something that sadly, unfortunately, between Uh, There's sexual assaults that happen pretty, it's not uncommon, I would say, for our youth to experience sexual assault. Um, You know, trafficking is also something that that our youth are vulnerable to. Both of those can result in rape and um,
0: unwanted pregnancy. Talking with Jill Gores, Clinical Services Manager for Starhouse, what about volunteers? Do you have uh, a lot of volunteers there or are you in need of them?
1: Volunteers, volunteers um, I don't know how many people realize this, but that is sort of the backbone star house. We receive donations and we have a great warehouse, and volunteers are the, the folks that come in and keep all of that organized and enable us to be able to provide you know clothes and socks and hygiene items and stuff like that right so we rely heavily on people donating clothing and hygiene items and we rely heavily on volunteers to come in and help us keep it organized and if anyone is interested in donating and finding out what our top needs are it's always available on our website
0: starhouse.us Jill Gore's again with Starhouse anything else you'd like to add
1: I think when it comes to Sigma, the main thing I would like for folks to, to know and just trust and maybe even for many folks, the first step in beating down the Sigma is just trust that the, the kids you encounter and you hear about, are, they're, they're really doing the best they can.
0: You know, the, the ad that we see on television, the game show type ad, you know, where, where the contestants are saying hanging out with the wrong crowd is the problem and, and some of these other things whereas it isn't the choices that people are making necessarily that are getting them into these issues
1: not at all not at all it's, it's, that's the sad part too is a lot of a lot of things are uh, stacked against this population between the trauma and the trauma of life on the street, the stuff they experience as children, the genetic, family history, things like that really make it difficult for them to beat the odds I've heard people respond to addiction, and what kind of person, especially whenever kids are impacted, what kind of person could do that to a child? What kind of person would do that to her own baby? Things like that. And I think that I always try to jump in and remind folks that the question is that's not the right question to ask. The right question is how powerful must addiction be to push somebody to these one, you know, to, to these actions and behaviors that cause so much pain? Very
0: powerful. From uh, looking at the website, it looks like you've been there for about five years. Are there, uh, is there any particular story of an individual that you think fondly back on that can brighten your day when you think about how their life has turned around?
1: Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, there was a handful of kids that we just kind of oh, we call a mission moment, you know, things that kind of keep us moving forward. And we were just visiting about this young man who was struggling with addiction, and he came in, and he didn't really want to talk about it. He didn't really want to acknowledge it. Uh, we didn't even really know about it until we had to use Narcan when he had a have an overdose. And we just kept showing up for him, and offering support, and working with him. And over time, he uh, we got him to detox. He, he engaged in treatment and graduated that, and moved on to an intensive outpatient program and got housing through that program. And when he came back just to kind of check in with us, it was. It was really, really cool to see how bright he looked. His eyes were bright. He was really smiley. You know, it's like the first time we've seen him really happy. And he was making some good steps. And so stories like that definitely keep us going. With addiction, I also talk about it. Like, there are certain things that follow addiction. There's certain behaviors that follow addiction. It can be the stuff that people tend to think about or see on TV, the agitation, obnoxious behavior, dangerous Risk-taking behavior, lots of lies and manipulation, and those behaviors—they—they they travel with addiction. They don't travel with the person, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind too. Like addiction, it looks really ugly, but it, it hardly—it doesn't really look like the person at all. So that's another piece that's pretty rewarding. Is whenever you get to see somebody find some freedom from from their addiction, and you get to get to see the real them. And like I said, these kids are the most loyal, generous, um, kind-hearted kids that I've worked with
0: before. Yeah, because you hear sometimes about how somebody who is uh, addicted will—they'll start stealing because they have—they need the money to continue to feed their addiction, and yet it might be the last thing in the world that you would normally expect from a person like that. Right.
1: It's it's not that different from the stories you read about people living— you know, somebody losing their job and having to steal a loaf of bread in order to provide for their families. Because the, the urge to, to use and the urge that our bodies need food are really pretty similar. Once someone is addicted, their brain sees their drugs as a necessity, not as an option, because their body needs it. Their brain is telling them that they need it, and so they will go to great lengths to
0: saying it. Jill Gores, she's the Clinical Services Manager for StarHouse. Give us uh, the information again where folks can find out more about StarHouse.
1: Our website is the best place to start. It's uh, starhouse, S-T-A-R-H-O-U-S-E dot U-S.
0: Jill, uh, thanks so much for your time today and uh, appreciate the efforts that you're doing there.
1: Oh, thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this.
3: Thanks for listening.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State... A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
2: Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. We start with the push to end hazing in Ohio. The death of Bowling Green State University student Stone Fultz sparked legal change in Ohio. And now his parents are taking legal action against the university. They sat down with 10TV's Clay Gordon.
3: It's been 16 months since the loss of their son, Stone Fultz. Eight indictments, six guilty pleas and two court trials resulting in guilty verdicts for hazing and alcohol counts, but acquittals for involuntary manslaughter and reckless homicide counts. We're happy with it. I sat down with Sherry and Corey Fultz since those verdicts were handed down. Did you wish the courts came back with more? Certainly. I think you always have that sidebar where you hope for more, um, especially with a death. you know, there's others that are accountable and, you know, we trusted the, the, the court system and, you know, we left it in their hands. you got to imagine the accountability piece. Those individuals need to live the rest of their lives knowing they played a role in Stone's death. The next step now is you guys are looking towards the school for accountability.
4: We really want to hold those with power at the universities
0: accountable to protect these students.
3: The family filed a wrongful death lawsuit and civil suit outlining a history of hazing incidents within Greek life at Bowling Green State University.
0: So what we are asking for is more proactive action on the front end reality is the Bowling Green knew they had a hazing problem on their campus. They knew about this fraternity in particular. They had problems with this fraternity, and they did nothing about it. So what are you seeking in this lawsuit? We're seeking both, uh, obviously,
3: in civil litigation, you need uh, to be asking for compensation, but we are also asking for real change here. Was this really the last option to take, was filing suit? Was there any kind of resolve in between this? We had mediation, unfortunately. Um, Unfortunately, the past 14 months, we've, we've tried to work with the university. And unfortunately, we've we had to come to this um, situation.
4: And file the complaint.
2: Again, that was 10TV's Clay Gordon reporting. Bowling Green did come out with a statement on this wrongful death filing, calling the lawsuit in part meritless and saying that it undermines the university's efforts to stop hazing. You can read their full statement at 10TV.com. Franklin County Commissioner John O'Grady made an appearance in the nation's capital. He talked to folks at the White House as he traveled there to talk about money our state received from the American Rescue Plan. The funding was handed out in 2021. It's supposed to be used to help states recover from the impact left by the COVID-19 pandemic. Now the commissioner is explaining how the $257 million is being used in our state helping folks
4: that are struggling with uh, rent, uh, they're paying their their rent and their mortgages. We've been helping uh, folks that are um, uh, businesses that are struggling uh, with uh, workforce and and workforce development.
2: And O'Grady says that money will also go toward vaccinating more Ohioans. The youngest children in our state are starting to get the COVID-19 vaccine. It happened less than a week after the FDA approved the shots for babies through preschoolers. 10TV's Lindsay Mills shares why some parents will need to rely on clinics to get the vaccine.
3: Good. Smaller doses. Where's your band Show them your band Tiny arms. We try to prepare a little bit. Um, we talked about it. Um, what we're going to go in, we're just going to get a little poke. A poke providing peace of mind for parents like Shyla Thurston. Mommy and daddy has already had theirs, um, and we're just going to go in and get protected so that we can go out and do things again. Despite her best efforts to mask up and avoid indoor places, her two and a half year old son Cruz got COVID twice. He ended up in the ER the first time with it, um, the second time he ended up at the doctor's office with Cruz. Cruz was the first child under the age of five to get a COVID-19 vaccine at a Columbus public health clinic. Some parents will be seeking out clinics like this one because in Ohio, only children three and above can get vaccinated at a pharmacy. And this is because
2: of provisions allowed to us by the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act.
3: For mom Emma McCullough, there was no hesitation. No. She says providing this protection for her two-year-old daughter, Marin is what they've been waiting for to return to a sense of normalcy. We would have loved to go to Pride and everything, but just because she hasn't been vaccinated yet, we've been really hesitant about that.
2: And our thanks to 10 TV's Lindsay Mills. She also asked Ohio pharmacists about how the state is getting more kids vaccinated, how they're getting ready to do that. So the Ohio Pharmacists Association meets with the Ohio Department of Health and Ohio's Medicaid managed care plans every other week to strategize ways to enable our pharmacists to get the vaccine. And if they have any issues with reaching their populations, we try and facilitate that. So we have been communicating closely with our pharmacist members to ensure that they have all the resources they need, whether it's informational packets for their patients or even just simply ordering information so that they can get the specific vials for these pediatric formulations. For now, Columbus Public Health is only offering the Pfizer vaccine for that particular age group. Moderna vaccine will be available through Franklin County Public Health. Ohio's largest business organizations gathered at the Statehouse to show support for Supreme Court justices. The list includes Sharon Kennedy for Chief Justice, Justices Pat DeWine and Pat Fisher are also up for re-election. The five organizations say the business community relies on consistency at the Supreme Court because it helps plan for future projects.
3: We care about the court because there's a lot of issues that come before the court that are directly economic issues. They directly set the course of how both large and small businesses are able to operate in this state. It can be from liability issues. Small business owners pay a greater percentage of burden for all kinds of liability insurance. Again, a court that's making it up, doing
0: whatever it wants to do in the area of liability, creates a huge cost to particularly
3: small businesses. Another very important issue that courts deal with is private property rights. Most small business owners own those their private property. Again, a court out of control, a court not following the letter of the law, can be very detrimental in private property rights.
2: More affordable housing options are coming to Ohioans. At the same time, we're verifying whether typical rent in the U.S. is now more than what people make on minimum wage.
0: Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors.
1: Hey, this is Grace Gosted. I'm a singer-songwriter, and like many, I've been traumatized by years of bullying. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're gay. You're worthless. Bullying causes real harm and can result in severe long-term depression, anxiety,
2: addiction, and even self-harm. I created the Black Box Project for anyone who has ever felt different for any reason. Go to theblackboxproject.org to help you take the first step to healing. You are not alone.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
2: Thank you for joining us here on Face the State. There was a landmark Supreme Court case involving Marietta's Memorial Hospital and a dialysis clinic. In a 7-2 ruling, justices ruled the hospital's insurance policies do not discriminate against patients with end-stage renal disease, which causes kidney failure. DeVita, a kidney care center, claimed that hospital's insurance singled out patients by reimbursing at low rates, in hopes that they would switch their medical plans to Medicare. Two health plan administrators are responsible for pushing the case to the Supreme Court. 10TV spoke with an attorney who represents the hospital.
0: They were up against virtually the entire uh, the Washington establishment in, in doing that. They, it was a big challenge that they took on, but they had the, the guts and the courage to stand up against it.
2: The attorney also told us the ruling will likely lead to more resources for the nearly 157 million people who use group insurance health plans. Some Ohioans are about to get new options for affordable housing. The U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development is helping the Columbus Metropolitan Housing Authority preserve 142 rental homes. $16 million project here. We'll also go toward building eight more affordable homes, plus a new daycare center. The homes and the daycare center are at Park Oak Station Apartments, and that's near Southwest Columbus. One of the many expenses affected by growing inflation is housing. Casey Decker with our Verify national team looked into a viral claim that says your basic minimum wage income is no longer enough to even make rent.
3: Home prices and rents continue to rise, but the federal minimum wage hasn't changed since 2009. One viral tweet claimed, quote, the average rent in the U.S. hit a new record high of $1,827 last month. On the federal minimum wage of $7.25, people take home $1,256 a month. Let's verify. Has typical rent in America exceeded the income earned on federal minimum wage? Our sources, the Department of Labor, and three real estate sites that produce research on rent prices. The federal minimum wage is $7.25 per hour. So let's calculate monthly income. On a 40-hour work week, if you worked 52 weeks a year, that comes out to $1,256 per month, just like the tweet claimed. Now, of course, some states have minimum wages higher than that, but we'll come back to that. The tweet says the average rent in America is 18.27 dollars per month. That number comes from Realtor.com's April estimate of median rent. It's based off units advertised on the site in the top 50 metro areas and only includes studio, one-bedroom, and two-bedroom apartments. Redfin does a similar estimate based on listed units of all sizes. Its number for April was 19.62 per month. And Zillow's estimate actually tries to account for all rents, not just new listings. Their national typical rent number, 1927 per month. All of those rent estimates are significantly higher than the $12.56 per month you can make on federal minimum wage. That means we can verify that the tweet is truthful when it claims typical rent has exceeded the income earned on the federal minimum wage. So what wage would you have to make to afford typical rent in the U.S.? Using Zillow's 1927 estimate, you need to make 11.22 per hour. And that's just to make rent. It doesn't account for taxes or other living costs. 16 states plus D.C. have minimum wages that high. But the cost of rent in those states may be higher than the national estimates. With your Verify, I'm Casey Decker.
2: Right now, several agencies are working to support families who were left in the dark for days earlier this month during an intentional AEP Ohio outage. Impact Community Action is giving out Kroger gift cards to replace food that went bad that will happen two days this coming week mid-ohio food collective plans to buy more food for its pantry which already serves the community and then there's life care alliance giving out free meals so if you need help we'll give you uh, 10 meals per person plus uh, if you want to come and get them um, you can come to our Carey's Cafe at 670 Harmon Avenue and, during the lunchtime hour, and they'll feed you another meal while you're there. You can find more information on how to connect with each of those agencies at the 10TV website and on the 10TV app. The White House is pushing for a gas tax holiday. We're going to crunch the numbers on how much that could save you and if there's a chance any Ohioans would suspend the state gas tax. At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits already receiving benefits use your account to change your address set up or change direct deposit get a proof of income letter and more in most states you can also request a replacement social security card save time go online open a my social security account at ssa.gov myaccount my account social security securing today and tomorrow produced at u.s taxpayer expense
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
2: Federal lawmakers spent hours this week with the chair of the Federal Reserve talking about inflation. Ohio's U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown acknowledged several factors are at play when it comes to rising prices, but did lay out some of the blame
3: on corporations. Most of these executives, they're not bad people. They're just doing their jobs, they tell us. It's the Wall Street system. These executives have to post
0: profit increases for their shareholders quarter after quarter after quarter. The consequences for everything else be damned and everyone else be damned. It's why for decades Wall Street's rewarded the companies that squeezed their workers the hardest, companies that cut wages and retirement benefits, and cut corners in worker safety and consumer protection just to make their stock prices go up. Our economy doesn't have to be a zero-sum game where Wall Street
3: wins. Everyone else loses. We can create an economy that reflects our values and works for everyone.
2: During that hearing, the Fed chairman admitted that recession is a possibility. He says federal rate increases won't lower gas prices or grocery prices, but they do hope the rate hikes will slow inflation to 2%. In May, inflation was 8.6%. Meantime, President Biden is pushing lawmakers to suspend the federal gas tax for three months to help people with the rising cost of everything. A gas tax holiday sounds like savings, but financial experts say "Mm, not so much. Most economists and analysts say the gas tax holiday wouldn't save you much money. Let's put 18 cents a gallon into perspective. An SUV with a 15-gallon tank costs $74 to fill up. Eliminating the federal gas tax would bring that cost down by $2.70.
3: It's not clear how much of that reduction will actually be passed along to the consumers. We would like to see that you remove the 18 cents a gallon tax Prices drop by 18 cents a gallon, but there's a number of players in the in along the way, a number of companies, and it's not clear how much they might capture some of the you know they might reduce the prices by 10 cents and capture the uh, cents for themselves. Um, so, I mean, it, you know, it could it could help a little bit. I mean, gas prices are quite high. I mean, if you have a twenty dollar gallon twenty gallon tank, every time you fill up you're paying $100. And and, and that's not inconsequential. I think overall, the effect on consumers like you and me is likely to be pretty
2: minor. The president's plan faces an uphill battle in Congress. Here's what U.S. Senator Rob Portman had to say about the president's plan on Fox News earlier this week.
0: Is the money going to come out of the Highway Trust Fund? So in other words, we're going to have fewer roads and bridges. We're, we're you know, the inflation is hitting there too, so we're having a tough time keeping up. And, uh, you know, is it going to be for how long? And so if it's 3.6% of uh, the cost of gas, that would help. But what would help a whole lot more is if we had more production of gas and oil. Uh, oil, obviously, is the biggest part of gasoline. Uh, not Next refining, and then next it would be state taxes and the next federal taxes.
2: Any significant price drop at the pump would depend on states joining in and gas suppliers passing on the savings. Governor Mike DeWine has told 10TV several times that he doesn't think Ohio should suspend the state gas tax. He's said that would cause a negative impact on highway and infrastructure projects without giving Ohioans much of a break at the pump. However, his challenger in the November election, Democrat Nan Whaley, thinks Ohio should suspend the state gas tax for six months. She says she would use money from the Rainy Day Fund to make up for money lost for road improvements like the Brent Spence Bridge project down there in Cincinnati. Thank you for joining us here today on Face the State. Have a great week.
0: That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station WBNS 10 TV from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 11.30 on 10TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dwayne Casares. He's the CEO of Directions Directions for Youth and Families. How are you doing, Dwayne? <laughs> I'm doing
4: good, Dave. How are you?
0: I'm good. Tell us what Directions for Youth and Families is.
4: Uh, we're a nonprofit agency. We have a, um a 50 licensed therapists that do mental health counseling, all of it outreach. So we work with kids in the homes, in the schools, in the community thousand a year in Franklin County. We also have two after-school centers. Um, They have uh, homework, help, and tutoring. Both of them are running summer programs right now. Uh, We have the arts, we have dance, we have music, we have uh, instrument lessons, um, leadership development, um, and...
0: It is a, a big effort that you've got going on over around the Eastland Mall and uh, we've talked in the past about this this is a, like one of the biggest projects that Directions for Youth and Families has ever undertaken
4: We developed a community restoration model, and uh, we took the trauma-informed community building model out of Protero Hill. Bridge House Corporation. developed it in San Francisco. They actually agreed to turn the research over to us because they like our model better. We incorporated the five social determinants of health and EKC's 2GED model and our own cultural assessment. And we have a new model um, of community restoration that we have made transferable so that it can be moved to other communities to address um, impoverished, um, crime-ridden, and, and uh, struggling communities.
0: I'm assuming folks can find out more about that uh, project on your website?
4: Yes, they can. And we have a whole Rooted in Change um initiative going on right now so we haven't raised all the money for it yet but we are at over like 85 percent um so we broke ground and um it should be ready to open its doors within a year
0: outstanding and uh that's dfyf.org for directions for youth and families uh when do yeah. When we talk to Dwayne, we uh, cover some other topics. And the 4th of July holiday is coming up with a lot of folks getting back together. Triple A says it's going to be near record travel this time around. So a lot of people are going to see each other that haven't for a while and uh, could be a little volatile the way things are going in the country.
4: Yeah, you know, part of it's great because, yeah, we've all – i kind of been somewhat in hibernation for the last couple of years, so um, people will be getting together. But, um, you know, with things going on now, you know, we have the January 6th hearings that are very public. Um, The recent uh, Roe v. Wade decision, um, which is just front and center. Uh, You're going to be around people, family members, who probably are all over the board in this.
0: I I think uh, uh, people being ticked off along with alcohol and backyard explosives are probably not a good combination.
4: (laughs) Just for you, yeah. <laughs>
0: now the the uh, you know these issues that you talked about, we're not going to discuss the the particulars of those two issues that you brought up, but they are interesting because, uh, as you mentioned, opinions can be all over the board, and somebody may take a conservative side on one of those issues and not on the other one. I mean, they could be a mix and match type thing.
4: Yeah, and, and part of it really has to do where people are. There, there's a, a Field and social work and council, we talk about these things as social moral reasoning, um, and people are all over the board on that. So that's why you know you can say, well, I, I want I want to debate this with this person. They may not be capable of understanding it at your level just because of their stage of moral reasoning. And, and so all people are that way. When we address uh, our clients, we have to take into account where they are at in their stages of reasoning. Um, otherwise, you're not going to be able to. World and a system in their growth and development. So, um, there's a whole uh, and the psychology field around moral. Another would say, you know, life is valuable. It's certainly more valuable than the cost of medicine. Therefore, he had, you know, there was really, you shouldn't go to prison because you should understand that he wanted to save his wife. So what he was doing was morally good. Um, But not everyone's going to agree with that. And we see this in children when they're trying to please their parents, Um, that, you know, it's a matter of, uh, am I going to get punished or am I going to get praised? So those are like pre-conventional thinking. Um, And then when you get to conventional, uh, uh, it's a a higher stage of moral reasoning. And then post-conventional gets into uh, there's a greater good for
0: all. That's interesting. Yeah, because it's kind of like the question, uh, knowing what you know now, if you could go back in time to the 1930s, would you kill Hitler before World War II? Right. Yeah,
4: exactly. Um, So but then you say, well, but but killing's wrong. I don't care who it is somebody you should go to prison i mean that that really is a a kind of a black and white issue and that's pre-conventional thinking mm-hmm. So when we look at moral reasoning, it's important to understand it because, you know, beliefs are developed by that, values are developed by that, and it is morally what we look at. So um, sometimes when you're trying to argue with somebody, they may not be at a level—interestingly, I saw a study many years ago, and it was something like 90 percent of all people in prison have not advanced beyond pre-conventional thinking. So that ends up being a challenge. It's a challenge as we're going through life, operating at a pre-conventional level. Um, And and it's difficult. We have now looked at studies that from a sociological standpoint, um, certain uh, um, having access to things or exposure to certain things or even uh, um, just experiences um, can certainly have a great impact on your pre-conventional, conventional, conventional, and post-conventional thinking.
0: Well, it makes me uh, think about, you know, today's, Youth, you know, with youth violence up so much in in major cities, including Columbus, you know, these kids are living in a in a world that none of us can even begin to imagine what it is, the choices and, and the environments that they live in and, and what they have to do to deal with it. Talking with Dwayne Casares, CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. And it's interesting, too, because whether we uh, admit it to ourselves or recognize it in ourselves or not, we begin to fall into predictable patterns of what we're expected to believe on a bunch of issues down the line that line up in general with what our political thoughts are.
4: Yeah, they are. Well, and let's even go further back. We're expected
0: to believe what our parents did. Right,
4: yeah. And then when you get beyond that, you end up seeing, well, ah, but then some people grow up and say, ah, I don't know that I agree with what my mom or dad said. Right. So then they start exploring those things and they say, hmm, I actually don't think I do. And I am entitled to think differently than them. Even that is moving up in a stage of development. Not all people are capable of doing that. Not all people. Is it safe to do that? Um, and so that's that's where the challenge lies.
0: Yeah, politically in religion. You know, I mean, most people stick with the religion that they're raised up raised up under. Right.
4: Well, well religion. It's a perfect example. That's part of our beliefs. So I believe in God, um, or I don't believe in God. Uh, So and that's basically assumptions that we make about the world. You know, God is real or God's not real. And then values get shaped from those things, um, and those values stem from that belief system. So that's going to be different for everyone, even in each uh, subcategory. There is so much diversity um, in each of these areas that uh, it's difficult to maneuver sometimes.
0: Now, these are obviously topics that go way above, I would think, general sort of therapy and counseling for some of the kids that go through directions for youth and families. But are these the kinds of things that are kind of running under the radar for a counselor or a therapist when they're talking to a kid or a family to kind of figure out what the nuts and bolts of their relationships are?
4: Uh, 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 four categories above where they're able to So um, it's not mandated people be somewhere else we just have to listen to them so they can guide us to let us know where they are at and then we can take approaches to assist them in exploring options we never make decisions for them what we do is present clients with options and allow them to choose. Um, sometimes people don't think they have choice in some of these things, but they actually do. Uh, and sometimes they're going to fail with some of the choices they make. And that's okay too. Um, you learn from your failures that you, you, uh, you that's what ends up happening is when you fail, sometimes it, it, it hurts so bad that you say, I'm never going to let that happen again. So you learn and grow from it. So making mistakes is all a part of, of uh, um, Development. And I'm not even just talking social moral development. I'm just talking about growth and development. And and, um, and the key is that we learn from our mistakes and we grow from them.
0: How much is empathy intertwined with all this?
4: well, empathy can be core to all of this. There are those that uh, theoretically have argued that those who really can empathize are at post-conventional thinking uh, because they realize it's not just about me and it's not about my beliefs and it's not about uh, my values because everyone's entitled to their values and their beliefs. And how do we end up sharing this together? That would be something on a post-conventional level. Whereas a pre conventional would say, uh-uh, there's a right or wrong, there's flexibility in this. What are you even talking about? Um, so that, that's where the challenge comes. And I think when we start talking about some of these issues, particularly when we're with family members, that's where we get stuck. Some people are operating at different levels, if you will, of moral reasoning. And therefore, they're never you're not going to be able to convince anybody of certain things. It's just going to become frustrating. And it's become a very negative experience for everybody involved.
0: But it is okay to think uh, that this is only about me when it comes to your dogs and the 4th of July fireworks.
4: That is exactly right, Dave, (laughs) because you have two 80-pound dogs trying to sit on your chest at the same time. This just is not a pleasant experience.
0: (laughs) Dwayne Casares, he's the CEO of Directions for Youth and Families. If folks want more information about your agency, Dwayne, where do they find it?
4: Uh, If anybody can make referrals to us, all our services are free. You can call 614-294-2661, or you can check us out on the web at dfyf.org.
0: Thanks, Dwayne. We'll see you later.
4: (laughs) All right. Thank you, Dave.
0: This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS-AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS-FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.